So in our passage today, uh, the um, subject of authority uh, comes right to the front. And so after singing this song uh, that reminds us who has all of the authority, reminds us of his son who he has placed in authority above all things, uh, we now turn to our passage, which you'll find in Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. Uh, that can be found on page number 982 of the Pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? from heaven or from man. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he, the father, went to the other son and said the same. And that son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? The chief priests and the elders said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are so grateful that Jesus has established his authority over us by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word, God. We pray that we would be moved this morning to delight in his rule and his authority, to love your word, to be amazed at your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness, and to be moved to respond to you as the kind and good and wonderful Holy Father that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if two different groups uh, have legitimate claims to authority, and then that authority comes into conflict— it can be disorienting for us. And we, we all experienced this during COVID, didn't we? The government came and said, churches, you may not meet, yet the Word of God encourages us 
to meet every single week. And so we experienced a disorientation. So no matter where you fall on the political spectrum of that, of that topic, every single one of us were disoriented by it. We wanted to know who should we trust? What should we do? How should we act? How should we respond? I use that as an example of how confusing it can be when two legitimate authorities are in conflict with each other. And that's actually what's happening in our passage. I think sometimes it's easy for us to read it as Christians from the 21st century, and we can clearly see that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of David. He's the true King of Israel. He's their Savior. We know that He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But the chief priests and the elders have very legitimate authority. The chief priests, they're from the tribe of Levi. God spoke through Moses in the Old Testament and gave them authority. And so these authorities are in conflict in our passage this morning. And what's interesting is Jesus could easily point to his power and his miracles as evidence for why they should respond to his authority. But instead, he points to something else. So here's our outline. First, we're going to look at spiritual authority and conflict, and then the evidence of spiritual authority. So what does Jesus point to? And then finally, how we can recognize and respond to spiritual authority. So our passage begins the open conflicts between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And this conflict's actually going to go on for the next two and a half chapters in Matthew. And Jesus is the one who sets up this conflict by entering into Jerusalem during Holy Week with three very clear symbolic acts. First thing he did was he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey visibly and openly fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And by doing so, he is saying clearly that he he believes himself to be the Messiah, the Son of David, the King and the Savior of Israel. Second thing he does is he walks right into the temple and he judges the way they are practicing the Jewish religion. And by doing that, he is saying again, as clearly as possible, that he has authority to judge them. He is saying he has more authority than the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders who set up those practices. Third, he curses the fig tree as a warning to anyone who has religion without fruit. Jesus is claiming to have the right to judge the sincerity and the authenticity of our faith. These are some pretty bold claims. And then, after cursing the fig tree, Jesus goes right back to the temple to teach, and that's where he's met by the chief priests and the elders, and that's where our passage picks up today. And it should be no surprise then that the religious leaders come up to Jesus in this moment and say, who do you think you are? So Matthew says, and when Jesus entered the temple, 
the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now just imagine if Jesus would have answered their, their question directly. He's basically got two options. In terms of human religious authority, there really is no one higher than the chief priests and the elders. And they certainly never authorized Jesus to say everything he's been saying. So he can't say that. But if he says he gets his authority from God, he will be accused of blasphemy because no one was quite ready for him to say that as plainly as he would have needed to at this point. So what does Jesus do? Well, he asks them a question. We're told, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now, we can read this as if Jesus is just being sly and witty and trying to dodge the question, but actually he's being very clear, and he is answering the question. Because if they say John's authority is from heaven— then that means Jesus's authority is from heaven too. Let's just look back at what John said about Jesus. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So if John's authority is from heaven, then the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders, they have their answer. Because Jesus is mightier than John. John even says that Jesus has the right and the authority to judge. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's why we sang those words from Psalm 2. It speaks of the same Jesus that John revealed to the people of Israel. So there's no way the religious leaders are going to say John's baptism is from heaven. Because that would mean Jesus is who John said he is, and they would have the answer to their question. But they don't believe John's baptism is from heaven. They don't believe Jesus has authority from heaven. So there's no way they're going to endorse John or Jesus here. And now I would love it. I would actually love it if they had the courage of their convictions in this moment to say, you know what, Jesus? We don't think John's authority was from heaven, and we don't think your authority is from heaven either. In fact, we think you're a fraud and a false prophet and that you're leading God's people astray. That would be great. Because that would mean that they actually cared about the people instead of just about themselves. So they just say, we do not know, which is weak leadership. It's evidence of actually no authority. They're afraid of the mob. They like the power and the prestige and the influence, even if they have no authority to back it up. So Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the chief priests and the elders wouldn't take a stand 
on the exact same question that they were asking Jesus. Essentially, the conversation here goes like this. Jesus, where do you get your authority from? And Jesus says, I don't know. You tell me. Do you think my authority comes from heaven? (laughs) We don't know. Right? They didn't want to say it out loud. Are you willing to say my authority is from heaven? No, they were not willing to say it because they didn't believe it, because they didn't want the people to turn on them. Now, as the reader of this story at this point, we see a conflict of authority. On one hand, there's Jesus who's healing and casting out demons and raising the dead and teaching with such authority that great crowds are following him. And on the other hand, there's the chief priests and the elders of Israel appointed by God through Moses to lead the people of Israel. The elders were from wealthy families in Israel. They would have been well respected because of wealth being a sign of God's favor. Not only that, but the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders were thought of as great law keepers. They were the most righteous and holy people in all of Israel. And so because of that, they were revered by all the people. And the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is a conflict of authority. And so who has authority from God? And that's the question Jesus is about to answer. Point two, the evidence of spiritual authority. So now Jesus is going to tell a little story. And with this story, Jesus is going to try and help the chief priests and the elders see the error of their ways. He's going to give a piece of evidence to prove that John's baptism was from heaven And therefore, his authority is from heaven as well, okay? So here's the story. He says, what do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. So this story is very straightforward. The point of it is so clear that even the religious leaders understand. The father in this story represents God. He exercises his authority by telling one son to go and work in the vineyard, and at first he doesn't do it. Now, let's not just read right past that. Let's not forget how radical it would have been in this culture for a son to defy the will of his father like this. The truth is, is if this story actually happened, that son would have been disowned immediately. And in a moment, Jesus is going to identify the first son with tax collectors and prostitutes. But in spite of his shocking initial response, this son eventually decides he should do what his father commanded. Then the father tells his other son to do the same thing, and he says he'll do it. But he doesn't just say he'll do it. He he says it in all the right ways. I will, sir. He shows the father the respect that he deserves. From the outside, he looks like the perfect son. He looked just as good on the outside as the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders did every day. But then he doesn't obey. So Jesus asks, who did the will of his father? And obviously, The first son did. 
The story is so crystal clear that even the chief priests and the elders can see, in spite of how terrible the first son's initial response was, he was the only son who actually did the will of his father, which tells us that actual obedience is more important than intention or perception. Because that second son, he he may have actually intended to go and obey. He may have been as sincere in that moment as he could have been. Or he may have just been pretending so everybody thought well of him. We don't know. The text doesn't say. Because the point is, regardless of what was going on in his heart, that the response of obedience is what's important. Then Jesus applies this story. He said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So tax collectors were the absolute worst sinners in Israel. They were thieves and traitors. They were collecting taxes for the Romans from their own people. Then they were inflating the tax bill and keeping the difference. And prostitutes have been on the lowest rung of every society. But the point of Jesus' story is that no matter how evil we are, even if we say we'll never obey the Father, if we repent, if we change our mind and trust and turn from our sin, he will fling wide the gates of the kingdom for us. And the chief priests and the elders of Israel are going to find themselves on the outside looking in because they refused to repent of their sins and turn to God. And then Jesus now gives us evidence for why they should have known John's baptism was from heaven. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, even when you saw them walk away from their tax collecting and their prostitution, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. See, you should have believed John's baptism was from heaven because first, John came in the way of righteousness. He came practicing righteousness. He came teaching righteousness and calling God's people to repent of their sins and receive baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. John even warned the religious leaders to their face. He says directly to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just say, I go, sir. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the religious leaders should have believed John because they should have recognized their own need of repentance. They should have known that they were not keeping the law of God themselves. No, they weren't tax collectors and prostitutes. They were greedy and power-hungry and full of pride. They loved having wealth and power and a good reputation. They had all the kinds of sin that hide really well. They didn't love God for God's sake. All their loves were for their sake. And Jesus is saying they should have recognized John as a prophet because he came in the way of righteousness 
which should have exposed their sinful hearts. The next reason Jesus gives for why the chief priests and the elders should have believed John is because what happened to the tax collectors and prostitutes who did believe him. They repented of their sins. They were baptized as a sign. Their sins were forgiven. They stopped being tax collectors and prostitutes. Now just think about how difficult that would have been. Both give up their livelihood. What else are they going to do? In that society, who's going to hire a tax collector? Who's going to hire a former prostitute? They, they give up their livelihood. Prostitutes, tax collectors, covered in shame. And yet, they turned from it in repentance. Wow, what a powerful testimony of the power of God. They were transformed by the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. And the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the scribes, they saw it with their own eyes and it meant nothing to them. One of the greatest pieces of evidence of the truth of Christianity is the transformed, of lives, transformed lives of those who put their faith in Jesus. And yet in spite of that evidence, the chief priests and the elders would not change their minds and believe John. So, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders should have responded to the message of John the Baptist because he came in the way of righteousness. They should have recognized their own sinfulness in the light of John's message. They should have believed John's message because of the evidence. They should have recognized the power in John's message after seeing the changed lies of tax collectors and prostitutes. But what about us? Jesus has ascended to heaven. We will likely never see Jesus in the flesh perform a miracle until he returns in power and glory. We don't have John the Baptist preaching for us. How can we recognize and respond to Jesus' spiritual authority now? So Jesus tells the chief priests and the elders that they should have recognized John's spiritual authority over them because he came in the way of righteousness. He was practicing righteousness, proclaiming righteousness. He was calling them to repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He was warning them that the axe was laid at the root of the tree, and if they didn't repent of their sins, that Jesus would come and judge them. And that should have been enough, Jesus says. They should have believed John. You see, sometimes people make it sound like John and Jesus were saying something new to the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders. And that we should be open to whatever new thing God is saying now. Don't be like the elders and the Pharisees who were closed off to the new thing God is doing. As if somehow the religious leaders needed to ditch everything they knew to be true in order to follow John and Jesus. As if somehow God has ever changed his message. No, that's not the case at all. John came in the way of righteousness. He was calling everyone, including the religious leaders in Israel, to repent of sins God had already made clear in the law of Moses. In John chapter 5, 
Jesus says this to the religious leaders. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, the problem for the chief priests and the elders was not that John and Jesus were saying something new. They were saying the same thing Moses said. All of Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture points to our sinfulness and our need of God's grace and mercy and his provision for us in Jesus Christ. And every human being is called to repent of their sin and put their trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That has been the message of Scripture from the beginning all the way to the end. And you and I are just as responsible to recognize the authority of Jesus in that message because we also have the one thing that should have been enough for the chief priests and the elders, which is the Word of God. And Jesus is telling them that God's word is enough. If we have Moses and if we believe his writing, then we should recognize that John the Baptist came in the way of righteousness and that Jesus is fulfilling the law and that we too should repent of our sins and believe. And then the evidence that we have truly repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus is if we are like the first son. Even though we refuse to obey the Father, the evidence of true repentance and faith is obedience. We see the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. We see his greatness and his glory and his holiness and his justice, and we know that we deserve wrath, but we also see that he's offering us life instead. And we let go of our sin and we embrace him as our treasure and the Lord of our life. And the evidence of that is resisting temptation and putting to death sin and believing that our sins are forgiven and that God has welcomed us into his kingdom and that we are new creations who are no longer enslaved to sin. But if we come every Sunday and we're like the second son crying, I will, sir, I will, sir, only to go out into the vineyard and refuse to do his will. If we leave this place and do not do what he commands, then we are no different than the chief priests and the elders. We haven't really understood the good news. And just like the chief priests and the elders, we should be able to look around and see people who were once like the tax collectors and prostitutes who have been gripped by the grace and forgiveness of God. See, this is why it's so important that we tell each other what God's doing in our lives. We desperately need to see that. We, we need to see how God has gripped us by his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. That he's so awesome that we're willing to persevere through trials, holding on to him in faith because he's worth it. We, we ought not be ashamed of telling each other the story of God's mercy and grace and power and redemption in our lives. We should be able to recognize people who love God and whose lives have been transformed by His grace. We should be able to look at them and think to ourselves, 
Maybe I don't love God like that. Maybe I've never put to death my sins like that. Maybe I've not been transformed by the power of God like that. That's what Jesus was asking the chief priests and the Pharisees to do here. Even though they refused to obey God at first, those people are now going out into God's vineyard and producing fruit and keeping with repentance. And the chief priest should have recognized, I'm not doing that. And that should be the evidence that we need to come to God and fall down before him and believe that we can move that mountain in our lives as well. So let's get what Jesus is saying in front of us here. Point number one, there is legitimate conflict of authority between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel because they do have a legitimate claim to authority. Point number two, the evidence of John's spiritual authority was in his message and the changed lives of those who believed his message. Point number three, therefore, you and I are responsible to hear the authority in that same message, to recognize the fruit that message produces in the lives of others, and to trust in Jesus. Some people say, you know, if I saw the miracles of Jesus, then I would believe. But the Pharisees saw those miracles and would not believe. And Jesus is saying that we have the message. We have the evidence in the changed lives of those who believe that message. Now at this point, I can imagine a skeptic saying something like, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to respond to the authority of God just contained in the Bible? That's it? And, and the changed lives of people who believe the Bible? Well, I, I see changed lives at AA. I see people go to a therapist and their lives are, are, are transformed. How is that supposed to be enough, Pastor Patrick? Well, I'm glad you asked that. If you happen to be here, I don't know if there's a skeptic here or not. But Listen uh, to what the Belgic Confession, Article 5, says on this very subject. It says, We receive all these books, and these only, as holy and canonical, which means the, the set of books set aside to be the Bible, for the regulating, right? So it regulates our faith and our life and what we believe and what we do, the founding and establishing of our faith, right? It, it creates faith and it keeps us in the faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them. We don't doubt that Jonah was swallowed by a whale or a big fish. We don't doubt that there was a great flood. We don't doubt that Jesus calmed the raging sea and walked on water. We don't doubt that the only way of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that the evidence that we believe that faith is a transformed life. So we, we don't doubt all, we, sorry, and without a doubt all, sorry, and we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them, so, so the church doesn't establish the authority of the Bible. No, no, no. The Bible establishes the authority of the church.
But above all, we believe because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that the Scriptures are from God. And also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. See, the Bible has authority because the Bible proves itself to have authority. Because the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that these are the very words of God. Jesus had authority then. Not necessarily because he did miracles, but because he is the word of God. John the Baptist had authority because he testified to the people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Any authority I have as your pastor had better come because I teach accurately what the Word of God says. If I ever depart from the Word of God, I am immediately divested of all of my authority, and I should be. Because God's Word is more true than anything we think or anything we feel. And we know this is true, as the Belgian Confession says, because the Holy Spirit testifies and the Scriptures prove themselves. So what if I'm unsure? What if I doubt the Scriptures are from God? Well, then we repent and believe and plead with God to open our eyes because if we believe and do not doubt, we can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it will do it. I personally cannot convince anyone of the truthfulness of Scripture. Only the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures can do that. So I would encourage anyone who has the slightest amount of doubt to plead with God to open your eyes. But don't just stop there. Read the Bible. Read it. Join the reading plan. Read the Bible and plead with God to open your eyes and watch what he does. When you do, you will see the greatness and the glory of God. You will see his holiness and power. You will see your own sin. You will see that you are a great sinner, but that God is full of love and patience and mercy and kindness. You will see that you are an ignorant fool whose heart is deceitful above all else. And you will begin to fear the sin that, leaves inside, that lives inside you and the judgment that it deserves. And you will begin to distrust yourself and your motives. And God will make you desperate for his truth and his word as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. You will begin to feel like I can't even take a step in this life unless God's word is in front of me. And you will see that he has the right to judge anyone, anytime, anywhere, in any way, but that he has been patient with you. Why? Because he is kind and gracious. And Jesus Christ left heaven for sinners like us. And if we believe in him, we will not perish but have eternal life. And we will see that there is nowhere else to go, for Jesus is the one who has the words of eternal life. And that we can believe everything Jesus says about himself, and everything John the Baptist says about him, and everything all of Scripture says about him, because the Bible will prove itself to be the word of God. And then we repent of our sins and trust that they're forgiven and that he will transform us to be like himself. 
It's easy to see how the chief priests and the elders were fools for not trusting in Jesus, but it's not because they couldn't see his power. It's because they didn't believe his words. And one final note. The religious leaders knew the scriptures. So it's not just knowing the scriptures. It's not just knowing what they say. It's believing every word in them is true. And the only way that happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit who humbles us so that we tremble at his word. And in that trembling, there's this beautiful contradiction of understanding God's grace and mercy and kindness. So we both fear God and love him with our whole heart. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you and we desire to know you in this way, to know you as the king with all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who has the right to judge, the one who when the nations rage, you put them down with a rod of iron And then to also know you as our Savior, who took the rod in our place, who suffered and died, that we might be forgiven and freed. God, help us to be people who are in awe, who are gripped by your glory and your greatness, who care not a a whit about exposing our sin and shame, even losing our livelihood if that's what it takes, God to be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own, and knowing the pleasure of walking with you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.